Hello and welcome to the Irish American Politics Show. I am your host, Gina London. And in this special series, we explore and examine through the eyes of the Irish American voter, what is being described as the most contentious and divisive presidential election in U.S. history. Now, for this special edition, I am thrilled to be introducing Cal Thomas. Not only is he a widely syndicated columnist, he is also the author of several books, including his most recent one that is coming out calling, being called America's Expiration Date. Cal, I'm going to leave it to you to kick us off with a little bit of the definer of what this title is that I might have not gotten exactly right and why the title is so important and what it means. Well, first, Gina, let me pick up on, uh, it's great to see you again, by the way. You the last too. first time we met was in Dublin some years ago. Uh, yeah. Let me pick up on something you also, uh, first said about this being the most contentious election in U.S. history. The 1801 election between Thomas Jefferson and John Adams was even more contentious than this. They were calling each other unbelievable names that would have gotten them sued for libel or slander today. Uh, during the <laughs> Vietnam War, Nixon, Johnson, all these. So we've always had contentious elections. This one has just been ramped up because of social media and the cable networks, talk radio and other things that have fanned the flames. And, and frankly, that contributes to ratings and profits. So there is kind of an ulterior motive uh, below the important issues that exist. Now, with respect to my book, it was inspired by the late British diplomat, Sir John Glubb, who found a pattern to history over 3,000 years uh, uh, that, that contributed to the decline and fall of nations more than invading armies. He found that the average uh, age of these empires and superpowers was 250 years. There were a few exceptions, like Rome, of course, but even Rome followed the same pattern. And the last stage, he said, before collapse was what he called decadence. And he defined that as uh, massive national debt. We have a $27 trillion debt in America and growing, and nobody seems to be willing to do anything about it, Republicans or Democrats. Mm -hmm. Military overreach, uncontrolled immigration without assimilation, a loss of a shared morality, and, uh, and, and, uh, and forgetting God. So all of these things, I argue in my book, are, uh, are uh, extant in the United States right now. And I think we have a very short time to turn it around if we can at all. Well, thank you for the harbinger of that great news there, Cal. I appreciate that very much. I want to go back to the idea of how divisive this debate or this election is, and especially as you mentioned, which is what I was going to point out when you were giving us all in a very important history, historical context about the mechanism of social media and about how quickly things are being broadcast on all the major networks, doesn't matter which side of them you're on. But before we do that, because your laying out of the potential rickety foundation or the potential collapse where we are right now is something that really gives me pause. And you did point out Democrats and Republicans haven't done anything with the massive amount of debt there is. What is, can it be fixed in 2020 depending on who it is, what needs to be done? Do we have to have camp campaign finance overhaul, a repeal of what happened through the Supreme Court on all of the different campaign, the, the contributions that can come in? What is the stair steps to bringing it back? You, I imagine you lay some of those solutions out in your book. And I apologize, I haven't yet read it, but I will. 
Okay. Well, I think there's several things, Gina. First of all, uh, I wrote on a column a couple of weeks ago called Why All the Anger in America? Why are people hating each other so much? I think it's out of frustration, namely because we are asking things of government that government was never designed to provide. The founders of the United States wanted government to be limited and the people unlimited. But we now have a sense of envy, greed, and entitlement. You look at some of the political campaign ads right now. It's all about the evil rich. And this is a theme that the left has been using over and over for many, many years, that somehow if you make uh, two euro, just to make it localized here, and I make one euro, you owe me half a euro just to make it fair. I should come to you and ask, well, how did you make the two euro? Where did you go to school? What's your work ethic? What's your philosophy of life? Because I want to be like you someday. But now the attitude is that, uh, you know, if you make more than I do, it's, it's unfair. And uh, that's not the attitude that founded this country. So that's one thing. Envy, greed, and entitlement instead of what I grew up with, inspiration followed by motivation followed by perspiration improves any life. Uh, the on, other that, thing is, on that particular one, though, just to ask a quick question, to, yeah. to one by one, because I'd love to have you, because I, I think that's a very compelling argument. I'd like you to put it back to the other civilizations that you talk about. Mm -hmm. Was there a chasm between the rich and the poor? Like we seem to see more of a distance in the United States that led to their collapse? Or what are the parallels, mm -hmm. if any, in the other ones that you examined? Well, yes, of course. Uh, you look at uh, the uh, Persian Empire, the Byzantine Empire, the Roman Empire, all of these, the Russian Empire, all of these I deal with in the book, uh, were basically dictatorships or, or uh, royalty, kings and uh, princes who were running things. There was really not a, a functioning democracy. This is what makes the United States and Ireland and nations in Europe uh, unique because uh, we elect our leaders. And this is a, a pattern that has not existed throughout history. And even today, if you look around the world, uh, these kinds of values are not replicated in many, many nations. They are dictatorships. They're ruled by religious fundamentalists. They deny women their rights. They don't have a free press. All of these things uh, have to be fought for and renewed in a constitutional republic like ours, or as Ronald Reagan famously said, we're only one generation away from losing it all. How do you, how do you, how do you equate or do you then some of the Nordic countries that wouldn't have necessarily that aspiration to be to great wealth potentially there'd be more egalitarian at least from my perspective and also the god component that you put in the beginning of your treatise they seem to have more of a secular approach to their yeah. government how does that equate with what you see going on in the united states and whether or not it needs that or it doesn't need that well the nordic countries of course are much smaller we are a nation of uh, 360 million people it is an enormous country with a huge economy and so you can't really compare apples to oranges in, in this regard. But, uh, you know, everybody claims to hate the United States, but they all want our money. And so many want to come here legally and mostly illegally. Frankly, President Trump has done a great job in stemming the uh, illegal immigration here. So I think it's difficult to compare countries at every level. But uh, the United States uh, is, is unique in many ways. The wars we fought have not about, been about grabbing land and possessions, as some of those European wars have been about. Uh, they have been trying to spread democracy and freedom that we enjoy to other people around the world. And you can argue whether 
that military overreach has been a good idea or not. I argue in the book that it is not. People have to choose for themselves. They cannot be browbeaten into embracing certain values. And I think, uh, you know, while uh, some of these Nordic states tend more towards socialism and spreading the wealth around, as Barack Obama used to say, uh, that has not been the pattern of the United States. Well, you talk about the, the as other countries then that they say that nobody likes the United States, but they want the money. Let's go just to the trust factor and the 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 charitable trust, the Pew Charitable Trust came out last month with its survey of many different global countries and the United States ranked below Russia in terms of which leader they trusted more back to Donald Trump. Is there an element of that perception or of that trust that also needs to be rebuilt? And if so, who does that or how is that done? Well, of course, these polls and surveys depend on mainly two things, the way the question is asked and the understanding of the person who is being asked. And I would say that uh, whatever, there are two things about Donald Trump. One is his personality, which I do not like. I don't like his demeaning of other people. I don't like name calling. I try to avoid it myself. I try to win the argument. And I think that's been one of his great weaknesses. He has not tried to win the argument. I think he is winning in many areas, but he's not winning the argument. So that's one thing. The policies are the other thing. The policies I love. The naming of conservative justices, the latest one, Amy Coney Barrett, who is uh, very likely to be confirmed uh, within a week or two as a justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, who believes in the Constitution as written, not as the way judges wish it was written. So I think these are all important things. And again, thirdly, the media coverage. I mean, if, if Mother Teresa had gotten the kind of media coverage that Donald Trump is getting, she would have been portrayed as a streetwalker. I mean, the media coverage... It depends on which outlet is covering her, because if she were covered by Fox, they would have been rolling out the red carpet for her. Well, and she should have you know, been covered that way by Fox and by a lot of other people. But look, again, this gets back to what kind of government do we want? Do we want a government that that produces the maximum amount of liberty so we can take advantage of freedom, uh, entrepreneurial capitalism, uh, building families and businesses and being personally responsible and accountable and not victims? Uh, Or do we want a big government taking care of us from cradle to grave if in fact we are fortunate enough to be born? We've had 60 million abortions in this country. negatively affecting the black community more than any other. Uh, And so these are choices we have to make. And that's, again, a choice coming up the next election in just uh, less than three weeks. Capitalism versus socialism, bigger government versus smaller government, individual liberty and responsibility versus government control. Is it as is it as binary as that, or are there also you mentioned Donald Trump's and how you don't like his personality and his insulting and his style? No. Is there and you but you do like his policies? Mm-hmm. Is there Cal to you? And I know we've got the two candidates that we have in the major parties in the mm-hmm. United States, but mm-hmm. is there a situation in which you could see there can be a value-based presidential candidate who also has policies that you like? If so, where the heck are they? And why is Donald Trump up again, despite all of his lackings in that style of value? Two two answers to that. First, my favorite is Mike Pence, the vice president, who combines uh, personal uh, values and morality along with uh, good public policy, in my judgment. But he isn't the candidate for president. We do have this binary choice. We had in the last election. We've had it in several elections. 
And uh, I wish it weren't so. I think Donald Trump picked up on the anger in this country, especially among the blue collar, uh, hardworking uh, people uh, in the middle of the country and the uh, upper Midwest, many of whom had voted for Democrats in the past, but felt they were being ignored or overlooked by Hillary Clinton. And, uh, and, and so voted for Donald Trump, many of them for the first time voting for a, uh, a proclaimed Republican. Now, the, the issue is whether that's going to uh, work that way again in this uh, election. I don't know. We'll have to see. We've had, I think, uh, close to 15 million people already casting ballots. I like showing up on Election Day. I like standing in line. I like the old fashioned way of doing things. But with COVID and so many other things, a lot of people don't like that. So uh, yeah, I, I, I even I was able to do my absentee ballot, and I even was able to email it in to my wow. home state of Indiana. Well, I hope so. you're not hacked by the Russians. <laughs> well, the, the Russians want Trump to win, so I hope not too, because no. I didn't vote for him. <laughs> well, the Chinese do too, so you know. Let's talk, let's talk about the two candidates for for a moment, because we were alluding to Mike Pence, but of course, as you said, he's not the candidate. Donald Trump is. Joe Biden is, of course, mm -hmm. on the Democratic side. Kamala Harris isn't. But we often do think about well, what's going to happen in 2024. But for 2020, and as you said, 14, 15 million people have already voted in early voting and absentee ballots. Will we continue to be vote? Be, be taken and counted past November 3rd. What is at stake in terms of, do you think, for example, that, that President Trump bears any responsibility for widening the divide through his rhetoric, through his tweets? And is there a way, if he does get reelected, that there will be a way to temper that down? If not, can Joe Biden do the same? Well, that's a great question. And uh, the Biden commercials now on American television stations are portraying him as a uniter. This never works the other way around. When a Democrat is in the White House and when Democrats control the Congress, nobody's talking about unifying the country. Uh, nobody's talking about bringing Republicans into the fold. Democrats run to win, and they should. The problem with Republicans is that uh, they don't know how to really use power. Uh, they get an office and they read the editorials in the Washington Post and New York Times, and they want to be liked and they want to be praised and they 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 fear being labeled racist, sexist, and homophobic. Democrats don't have this problem. They use power to advance an agenda as well. They should. That's what politics is all about. And uh, I just think this whole idea of uh, unifying has Trump has Trump made it worse. Yeah, in some ways but he has also railed against the establishment. The establishment is something in Washington, in the media, in politics, that has felt challenged like never before. And that's why this time around, unlike 2016, they are seriously confronting Trump and trying to defeat him. But are you seriously telling me, Cal, and you know I have great respect for you, <laughs> that the establishment wasn't brought in in the form of all those businessmen that Trump brought in. He was invited to every establishment party wedding etc he loves the establishment he wants to be part of the establishment he only said he wasn't part of the establishment so he could get elected yeah well that's a great question but that part of the establishment as you indicated was the business establishment i'm talking about the political establishment the oh, lawyers they're so are... intertwined come on well sometimes they are but look there's nothing wrong with business business builds the country business hires people unless you think government ought to be the ultimate hirer which uh Biden does and saying that uh, he's going to create uh, hundreds of thousands of new jobs. We'll all be building windmills and uh, solar panels. Well, there are a lot of people who have other jobs like me, like you, who don't want to build windmills or solar panels. They want to do what they do. And uh, people are losing jobs already because of COVID. Uh, before this uh, pandemic, 
uh, we had the lowest unemployment rate since the numbers were established. Lowest African-American unemployment rate, tremendous figures. And then the virus comes in and, and destroys a lot of this. It's coming back slowly. The stock market is uh, rising uh, exponentially and things are getting better. I don't think they're going to get better if Joe Biden is elected, but that's my opinion and that's my vote. And uh, we got a lot of other people voting uh, for and against what I believe. So we'll see. I don't think the results are going to be decided on November 3rd. It's going to be- No, I, they, they, they won't be unless it's a landslide. Everybody agrees yeah. that the number of, of mail-in ballots, because it's really 50 mini elections this year, yeah. and that's each right. state's going to be, have, has different dates on when they'll still be accepting and then counting those. It will be interesting to see. Projecting, though, and taking away even who wins, back to the premise of your book, because I think mm. it's, a, it's a very fascinating, especially in the light of all of, of what's going on right now. Is there something Democrats, Republicans both do, as you, we've both agreed, they say what they need to say in order to get elected. But yet at stake is a republic, is 360, 330 million people that call mm. the United States their home. Is there something that both parties need to do to come together? Is the fundamental two-party system broken? Is there a way that this country can survive another 250 years going as it is? If not, what can both parties do to come together? Do well, I think we're so divided, Gina, that uh, there really uh, isn't a way to come together, as you say. You have, you have one party that believes in bigger government, higher taxes, more regulation, just a fact, it's not my opinion, and you have the other that mostly believes in lower taxes, smaller government, and individual responsibility. It's like oil and water. The, my point is we need to, we being people who are on the conservative side, need to win the argument. And I think slowly, slowly we are. School choice, I think, is a major uh, factor in this. Uh, I think especially among poor and minority communities, which overwhelmingly want to get their kids out of these failed public schools. Uh, and now, frankly, uh, thankfully, the Supreme Court is allowing for that and voucher programs. And I think that has the best hope for the future, especially for these groups that have negatively impacted by this. So I think that's one thing. Uh, sending our kids uh, after they graduate from high school to universities that don't reverse the values and undermine the Constitution is another way to do this. Uh, staying, getting married, staying married, uh, being a responsible parent, uh, all of these things uh, uh, throughout history, regardless of the nations, have proven effective in promoting the general welfare, as our uh, uh, preamble to the Constitution says, providing for common defense and ensuring domestic tranquility. We know what works. This was a title of a previous book I wrote. We can bridge this gap by focusing on what has proven to be successful in the past and not re-arguing these issues over and over again. Do you think that the younger generation, the millennials and the Zs, agree with these things that you've said? Well, some do. I mean, it, it, again, it depends on the schools they go to, uh, the social media interaction they have. I think social media has been very destructive because, again, we tend to only listen to ideas that we already believe in. And we go to certain websites and we go to certain networks and we go to certain uh, other things that only reinforce what we already believe. I think there's a real danger in that. And so we get we're all now defined as parts of groups. And if you don't think like the group does, then you're not sufficiently female, you're not sufficiently black, you're not sufficiently this or that. So the whole idea of independence, and we've seen this with the Amy Coney Barrett hearing, we saw it with 
uh, Clarence Thomas, who was African-American, if he didn't think like other African-Americans that he wasn't sufficiently black. Joe Biden told a black talk show host in America a few weeks ago, hey, man, if you don't vote for me, you're not really black. Now, what's that all about? So well, we that, particular, that particular one, I will take you on, because in that particular one, we talk about all the different times Trump has said, oh, I was just joking. I was just sarcastic. That was in the midst of the whole context as he was talking about uh, it was a bit of a, of a of a laugh at that moment. And he did double back on that. But to the point, though, about how we keep each other in the, in the bubble. And then you also did say that we need to win the argument. Mm. How can we, how can we have difficult conversations if the ultimate goal is to win and not to listen? Well, okay. I, I look, I have many liberal friends and I, they're very close friends. I would, so, I, I would even count myself one of those counts. Well, uh, yeah, thank you. But the, the point is you have to have a relationship and conversation. You can't see other people by labels alone because that cuts off the relationship. Uh, take take someone of a different political viewpoint out to dinner, invite them to lunch, find out how they came to their point of view. And by respecting them in that way, then you earn the right to share how you came to your point of view. And if you focus instead of, yeah, I need to win the argument, but if you focus instead on what really works, we have a history. We know what works. We, we didn't just crawl out of the cave. We're not the first generation to walk the planet economically, religiously, uh, relationally, uh, foreign policy, all of these things have been issues in our past. They've all been argued. If we look to the past, not to live in it, but to learn from it, update it as necessary, as I say in my book, and move forward, we'll have a better future. But if we continue to just throw up these same old arguments, you know, you don't care about this group of people. No, you don't care. You're a, you're a right-wing Bible thumper. You're, well, you're a secular humanist. How does that solve anything? How does that move the ball forward? It raises money in fundraising, and that's what it's really all about, and perpetuating the careers of politicians in office. We need term limits. That would solve a lot of problems. Yeah, that that actually is something that I think there are a lot of Democrats and liberals who would agree with you too that there's no. not that there's not there's limitations on the on the executive branch, but there's not in the legislation and why in the legislative branch and why not start there? Maybe there would even be would there ever be a room for limiting and not making them lifetime positions over on the Supreme Court? Well, that's in well that's another argument, but let me tell you my favorite story on this, my good friend, the late Senator George McGovern, who was the Democratic presidential candidate in 1972. Uh, after he lost his Senate seat in the Reagan landslide of 1980, he'd not done anything other than public service since coming back from World War II. So he decided to go up to Connecticut and buy an inn and try to run it. And after a couple of years, it went belly up, it went bankrupt. So a reporter for the Wall Street Journal called him up, wanted to know what happened. And then the only thing you need to know about what happens to politicians who stay too long in Washington. George McGovern said, quote, gee, if I'd known how difficult it was to run a business, I might have voted differently in the Senate. I rest my case. <laughs> he should have invited Bing Crosby and Danny Kaye to come and sing at the country end, but that would have been a whole other movie, Cal. <laughs> <laughs> Final question, and I'm excited about this. You're going to take off your conservative syndicated columnist hat. There you go. You're going to put on your Irish European hat, which you wear very well, might I add. And you're going to just take a look at each of these two candidates. You're going to say, which man would be better for Europe as president in 2020? Well, it's a great question. I'm not a prophet or the son of one, but I do.
their own money to provide for their own defense. Since World War II, much of Europe and Asia have been living under the protection of the nuclear umbrella, and it felt uh, they had no skin in the game. And I think, uh, you know, paying part of the bill for NATO and for uh, their own defense uh, and withdrawing a lot of American troops uh, from uh, Europe and other places where, you know, they haven't, we, we haven't been paid, we're running this enormous debt, uh, have, been, have been good. Uh, the, the United States and Europe have had, especially since World War II and the Marshall Plan and the rest, a, a great relationship. So I think it's less about who is president and more about the shared common values. Yes, Trump has you know, denounced Angela Merkel and, and uh, on occasion Macron in France and, and even uh, some of the U former UK leadership, you know, and I think that's unfortunate, but we do share a value system of freedom and uh, liberty and these other things that I think will exist regardless of who wins the next election. And I hope that those, those values that you just described so well continue to be at the top point of people's minds as they go, continue to go to the ballots. And we will see, if not November 3rd, but therefore, there very soon afterwards, who will be the next president for the next four years. And thank you, the incomparable Cal <laughs> Thomas, ladies and gentlemen. And that thank concludes you. this special edition of the Irish American Politics Show. Once again, I'm Gina London. It is my great pleasure to be your host. And I look forward to seeing you again soon.